have been told that I must inform you the following program contains adult subject matter, adult language, and spoilers. Now, thank you, and enter if you dare. The Father and Son Spy Fi podcast. Often we're going to be talking about James Bond specifically. Remind me though, did we record all of the episodes in one weekend that's been out previously, or did we have that in two sessions? No, it was in two sessions. Okay, so we did two movies on the first one and then one movie on the second one, right? Or is it No, flip? I think it was one and then two. You still haven't seen a Bond movie in the theater at this point though, right? No. Okay. No. In fact, I saw it on the million dollar movie, which was an afternoon movie they showed on Channel 13 here. And that was also where dialing for dollars like in the uh, song Mercedes Benz from uh, Janis Joplin came from. That's what she was referring to. Oh, Lord! Won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Which town did she grow up in? Well, she was from uh, uh, Beaumont. Okay. So they got Channel 13 out there. Yeah, of course they would. It's Beaumont, right? Yeah. It's always dialing for dollars. Dialing for dollars, it, it was kind of like a lottery. They put your name in this big rotary thing, and they pull your name out of it. And if they pulled your name out of it, they called you. And if you answered, you could win some money. You had to answer a trivia question or something about a movie, if I remember right. It's been a long, long time. Yeah. But I know that the Million Dollar Movie was on all through the 70s, so you probably remember some oh, of yeah. it. Oh, yeah. It was still on the 80s, too. I remember yeah, watching right. that. I, think they, I, I don't think they ended until the late 80s, early 90s, right. because they just gave it over to the talk shows eventually. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think probably 1971 was the last time I watched it, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was a, it was an afternoon movie, and I'm housewives and kids after school probably watched it for the most part. And so how many Bond movies do you figure you saw before getting to Thunderball? I'm not sure if I saw any. You think Thunderball might have been your first Bond movie? Well, no, I, you sense, know, though. I don't really know which ones I saw first. Okay. Okay, I do know that I would catch them on commercial TV. The first Bond movie that I believe that I saw in a theater was was much later. It was later in the 70s. I can't remember. It might have been Diamonds Are Forever. But I did. I know in the, in the 70s, sometime 1974 or after, I started going to Bond movies in the uh, theater. Okay, so because I couldn't remember what the hell happened in the movie months after the fact, I went and I read up on Wikipedia and kind of did a Cliff's Notes. But if I'm missing anything important, jump in and elaborate. Well, for starters, the movie opens with the credit sequence with the song Thunderball by... Tom Jones, <laughs> that's right, that's right. I like the song okay. I do think it's kind of cheesy, though. Look, Very Bond dumb. If you take all the Bond music, I still think the majority of the Bond themes are cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I remember, I think it was Goldeneye. That's the Tina Turner theme, if, if you're trying to remember. Yeah. Which one was it that uh, that Scottish chick did? Oh, she Easton? Whoever she, was she, she the one, The one that was in Garbage. The group Garbage. Oh, Shirley Manson. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember which the one. The World she, is Not Enough. Yeah, The World is Not. To me, when I saw that, it absolutely knocked me off my feet. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't. I thought well, I knew the, who the, she, the movie or the video? Well, the video was awesome, too. Uh-huh. In the opening credits, mm-hmm. it, a lot of those elements are there. It was pretty, I mean, I just thought that was really something special. And you're a Tom Jones fan, too. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, like I said, I like it okay, but it's a little cheesy. It's a little, it feels a little slow. It feels like it maybe maybe just a little, little, little too yeah, down tempo. Yeah, well, let's face it. Tom Jones is a little guy that chicks like looking at for some reason, and he's really... <laughs> I mean, they see him as racy when I don't see him that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's the guy that everybody he's thinks got, of. He's little... got, you know, he comes across with this really powerful voice. But when you look at this little bitty guy that he is, you know, it, the voice doesn't really match. Eh, yeah, maybe. But I, I, I still picture him swaggering while the panties are getting thrown at the stage. He's like the classic, oh, got, yeah, like the, no. the rock Lothario. Thunderbolt, as you said, was a big hit. It's one of the more iconic Bond themes. But they had two other songs by three other acts that went nowhere. I had heard two different stories. I thought I'd initially heard that it was Pauline Keel who coined this, but now I hear that it was an Italian review of one of the Bond movies referred to James Bond as Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And that got some traction, and they eventually did a, a theme song for Thunderball called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I believe it was originally performed by Shirley Bassey, who had, of course, done great with Goldfinger. And I guess this would have been the first time you had the same singer do a Bond song and certainly would have been the only time that they did two in a row I would think right they, they never repeated the same artist one right after the other one but you and I were listening to that before we started recording and you were not kind to that song no I thought it was silly as, but see I also understand why it would have never gotten traction in that era we had a censorship was widespread and back then Bond was already something racing you know they have to make mo- money with these movies and in a big market like Houston, it might fly. But look at uh, all these other little towns. Like we're talking about Joplin and Beaumont. Man, you couldn't show something like that in Beaumont, Texas. And then to put a song that said, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. No way, man. It wasn't going to go. <laughs> it's so bizarre thinking back to a time when kiss, kiss. Oh, and I guess the bang, bang, you're going to a different place inside the gun. You're thinking of the other kind look, of bang, bang, look, right? Look, look, You look at something like Rowan and Martin's Laugh In or the Smothers Brothers. Mm-hmm. Those guys got away. In fact, Rowan and Martin used to laugh 
about all the stuff that Smothers Brothers could get away with. But they didn't get away with it. They finally got canceled. And when you look at what they're really talking about, today's culture would go, what are you, are you kidding me? You just don't get it. I mean, all you got to do is look at a Doris Day movie. Believe it or not, in some scenes, Doris Day was racy. But somebody today, anybody that was born in the 70s or later, there's no way you can see what I'm talking about. Mm. You would have to watch those movies. A girl in a bikini was racing. She's half naked. The beach movies. The reason why Annette Funicella and all them kids were so clean cut is because they were half naked mm. as far as the public was concerned. That's the only way you could, the American public would allow They had to make themselves as wholesome as possible. They had to be as wholesome as possible because they were running around naked. Yeah, you just really have to be from that era to understand what was going on. Well, you couldn't even show two people in the same bed. You know, it was routine. You would see two beds in a bedroom with a married couple. I mean, even people they like Dick Van Dyke, they liked. Everybody had separate beds. Yeah. And it was very, I mean, they talk about it all the time. Lucille Ball was the first pregnant woman on TV. I mean, they were even showing a pregnant woman fully dressed. Ankle-length dress. That was just too much. The American public can't take that. Well, and probably the only reason why it got a, they got away with it is because it was a big hit show, and you couldn't have the show without Lucille Ball in it. And she, apparently, they didn't. They hadn't figured out how to conceal pregnancies at that point, or they weren't good enough at it to pull it off for the well, lead actor tried, of the show. Well, they tried, but it was. It turned out to be. The power of Desi Luke. They owned half the stuff that was being shown on TV. They got away with it. I mean, I don't know what kind of ceiling you would call that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Paper ceiling, or I don't know what it was. But just think that, you know, you saw pregnant women. Pregnant women were everywhere. But yet, you could always show one on TV. Yeah. It's ridiculous when you think about it. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I lived in that era. The goal of housewives were... To run to in actual fact, not that many housewives ran around in dresses and pearls around their neck. And mm. if you look, Donna Lucy Reed. did it. Dinah Shore did it. You name Ozzy and Harriet did it. That's how the woman always was portrayed. She wore a dress and she had fake pearls around her neck, plastic pearls, glass pearls, or whatever. And every woman I know because I had. A cousin that was like that. I mean, you never saw her looking anything but that way. I never saw her in slippers or any of that stuff. She came out of the room. Well, first off, she was probably in the kitchen before any of us got up in the morning. But she was in a dress and high heels. (laughs) My mother ran around in a house dress, you know, these shift-like dresses, Mm -hmm. uh, house shoes that didn't have any heels in them. But they didn't want to be seen by other women that way. Yeah. You know? But that's, that's you know, when they, she went out, even my mother would put on a dress and put on some fake pearls or whatever around her neck. That was the reality, you know? Well, my understanding that the theory was that what was getting shown on television was aspirational. It wasn't supposed to be reality. It was supposed to be a reality to aspire to. They didn't want to show what was really happening on the airwaves. They wanted to show you what they wanted people to be, what they wanted society to be, where they wanted people to go and how they wanted them to comport themselves. Anything that reflected negative, commercial TV has always been about the commercial. Like the night, he cuts through life like every day is alive. He's fast and he's cool. 
from the school that loves and leaves them a pity if it grieves them Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bands not a Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. <laughs> Would not fly. Right. But what did you think about the actual, like, lyrics and Shirley Bassey's vocal style? It was goofus. Yeah. I- I'll give you an idea. Shoot, I can't think of his name. All of a sudden, it starts with a K. It'll come to me. A s- artist? Yeah. Uh, what do you do? Well, he's he's a hip-hop. Uh, Kanye? Canon. Canon. Yeah. yeah. K- I like Canon. Me too. Okay. That's one album of yours that you got. The uh, first song I ever heard him singing, it was on Austin City Limits. It was she, it was that song, She Shot Me Dead, Bang Bang. Uh-huh. That's done really great. That will make you jump up and dance. Mm-hmm. The song you're referring to was just yeah. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was one of those, you could tell... There's a there's a, a famous deal. Uh, I think it was a, a Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. So George Lucas writes the script of Star Wars, and he hands it to Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's having trouble with the lines, and he eventually just looks at George and says, "You can write these words on a page, but you can't say these words out loud. Your mouth isn't made to do this kind of dialogue. You can't sell it. You're asking too much of us to try to make this happen." And the fact that he was a strong enough individual and a strong enough actor to recognize that fact is part of what made the earlier Star Wars movies better because the actors who worked with Lucas in the prequels didn't have that strength and conviction and the movies suffer for it because of those dead deliveries and so when I'm listening to that song as great a singer as Shirley Bassey is trying to make her mouth form those words in that rhythm it just was not working it's a b-side it's a a deep album cut it's not something you want to have on the credits of a Bond movie and it sounded very much to me like the soundtrack to a ripoff of a Bond like the wannabes like this is the best that they could do but I think they were right in rejecting it however Dionne Warwick also did a version of it and I thought that she did a much better job of selling some really bad lyrics with some really funky phrasing and cadence but she managed to pull it off I think because she had a different sound she she had a softer sound and so I think the melodic quality of her voice helped to cover up for the the fault in the songwriting yeah except when you were playing it for me what did I say you thought it was like I thought her brain took a vacation I said, <laughs> I said look you know that just goes to show why she was this great singing talent but that's where it ended you know, there was no brain behind it. But so, you got to give her credit. She was able to take those words and make them sound nice so long as you didn't actually listen to she her. She had a great voice. She had a great sense of, of rhythm. I told you, you know, when I was younger, before I knew what Dionne Warwick looked like, I envisioned her as something like the most beautiful woman there was because I heard those songs on the radio. Do you know oh, the, the way, way to Santa? Santa. Yeah, you bet. Dun, 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 I, man, let me dun, tell you what. When I was in military school, my roommate had that 45. I wore the grooves off of it. <laughs> And still, when it would play on the radio, I was up and listening every time. I envisioned her in a 60s summer dress wearing a, oh, shoot, uh, what's that new Lady Gaga uh, you gave me? Oh, where she's got Uh, the cowboy hat on? Roxanne? Or no, no, no. Oh, uh, uh, Joanne. Joanne. And she's got that big pink hat. 
Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's one of those. Okay. You know, those were really big in the 60s and way up into the 70s. They okay. came in, but they all had that basic style. Mm-hmm. That's what I envisioned with blue eyeshadow and pink lipstick. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's how I saw Deanne Warwick. You know what you're reminding me of? I had a crush on all of the girls in a video from the early 90s. Rod Stewart and one of the Isley brothers, I can't, Ron Isley, did a, a remake of This Old Heart of Mine. Mm-hmm. And in the video, it's lemon suits, and there's an all-white background, and they've got go-go dancers dancing along in the background. I think they're wearing, like, plastic dresses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they've got that very arch, that bold makeup with bright colors around the eyes and the pink lips. And I just thought those were the hottest women at the time. Yeah, well, and you know, back... It's such a gorgeous that, contrast. Well, they had those look, light, bright colors look, against dark skin. The, when we got into the 70s, they got more into earth tones. Yeah. But... Up until about 1970, 71, younger women, girls, still wore the blue eyeshadow, the light blue eyeshadow, and things like pink lipstick. The combination of the blue and the pink, you know, most of my Christmas decorations to this day, I, w- I went to a lot of trouble. Most of my outdoor lighting is blue and pink lights. To me, that was always, you know, that, there's just something real bright about that combination. Yeah. Your mother, at the time when we were teenagers, her best friend was my girlfriend. Yeah, they all wore that oh, stuff. Oh, uh, my mother wore blue eyeshadow into the 80s. Well into the 80s. Well, because that's what she learned. That's what guys liked. And she didn't change her habits all that much. Because I can remember, you know, at the time you were created, yeah, she was wearing blue eyeshadow. And my ex-girlfriend was wearing earth <laughs> He's tall and he's dark and like a shark. He looks for trouble. That's why the zeros double. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. He's suave and he's smooth and he can soothe. You like vanilla, the gentleman. Mr. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. So there's also a third song of all the people in the world. Johnny Cash did his own Thunderball with completely different lyrics, completely different rhythm. It's, it's a country song. Like, and I'll bet happen? you any amount of money that his album Ring of Fire was why they thought they wanted him. Because the timing is just, and I heard the song. You were playing the song. I'd heard it once before a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't remember where or when. But still, it was Johnny Cash and the song stinks. Yeah. Well, I don't think the song stinks. I think it's good. It's just, it's not a good Bond thing. <laughs> it sounds for son. I'm sorry, but it does. One of the charms of Johnny Cash is that it, it always sounds like it's part of his life. That doesn't sound that way. So, uh, no, yeah, Johnny no, it, Cash it, is another example of legend that's not real. Uh-huh. You know, uh, like everybody thinks he went to prison. He never went to he prison. He never went to prison, no. But it's funny because you're mentioning that. And then the, the later Bond song, A View to a Kill, a verse into the chorus is So we dance into the fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. It's almost like they may have said, Hey, why don't you, you know, gave fed 
Duran Duran's imagery, or maybe they just knew about that. I don't think it's as bad of a song as you say. I do think that it feels more fabricated, though, because as you said, it doesn't really reflect what we know about Johnny Cash. It does sound like a, a hey, he's trying to write a Bond I'm theme. I'm sure that if we had him to ask about that, he would probably say he wanted the gig. It paid money, and he was probably, I don't know, he's probably a fan of Bond. I mean, most men were. They all wanted to be Bond. He tried to do it. You're hearing this more and more. And in fact, I just saw some interviews of people talking about Kurt Cobain. I saw interviews with Mellencamp. This is just recently. And these are old interviews, both talking about doing what they want to do. That was the key to their success. They didn't worry about the commercial value. They did what they wanted to do. And it's not the first time that song Garden Party by Ricky Nelson. He he, he refers to it. You, you know, don't... If you're going to do a garden party, don't worry about what they want. Just do what you want, yeah. you know, <laughs> and let it let it let it take its its course from there. You gotta please yourself. Yeah, you you gotta please yourself. The truth is, songwriters and uh, the reason why I referenced Mellencamp and Cobain. Mm-hmm. Because they had issues where record companies wanted them to do something. They might, for a brief moment, try to do it and realize it's just not going to go anywhere. And I think that's what happened to Cash. In that sense. He, was, he had to put certain things in that song to make those people happy. And he just couldn't. If anything, it's almost more country twangy than, no, I would say, than average. Well, but and I've definitely heard him do less... I've, I've never, I, he's performed songs, for instance, Ring of Fire, that's probably closer to a Bond theme than when he actually attempted to do a Bond theme. Right. But then again, it's like when I saw Jimmy Dean in a Bond film, and I'm going, and I, and I know the country, all everybody that saw it were going, what in the world are you putting somebody like? But it worked because he was Jimmy Dean. You know, he was playing another character, but he was being himself. Mm-hmm. If you tried to make him into to Bond's evil arch rival, ar- the arch episode, rival, yeah. and and give him a German accent or something, it would have never worked. But he was just a country boy. Which one was that? That's that was uh, from one of the seventies one or something. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, get to that one eventually. We can come back to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I look, we're almost an hour in. We're still on the credit sequence, but it's good. It's good. I like it. in the sky and all the world can hear call They shudder at the fury of the mighty thunderball The power of her engines now is drowned in the sea But the deadly force from within her is somewhere running free Thunderball, your fiery breath can burn the coldest man And who is going to suffer from the power in your hand? I'm afraid it's time once again to do the mail. Can you read that okay? Oh, come on. You want me to read? (laughs) Yeah. 
Number 21, the 108 Sage. Alley by Alley. I think it's actually Alley Bats. Yeah, it is Alley Bats. You forget, I can't, I don't, uh, these are the wrong glasses anyway. Hold on, do we need bigger? Thanks to these Twitter crafty. <laughs> I said Twitter Roddy. <laughs> okay. Uh, number 21, the 108 Sage. Alley Bats, Amy Freaks, and Amy... I think it's anime nostalgia. It's a Japanese animation. Cool. All right. BGSU Batman Conference. Binko Django. Bob Buster. The Cinnabud Podcast. Collected Edition. Dr. Ange. Anna. Chris at Bat Brooks for Beginners. Chronosphere Fiction. Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Daniel French, Fish, Bonus, Sound Design, Dave, Golding Art, Delvin, Dark Web, Felix Leiter, Gee. Doc Strange, Epsam? Ep- Your guess is good as mine. Okay. El Romero, Mero, Fan Holes Podcast, Philippe Alves Dio, Gabriel Blake, Gregory Lynchfield, the Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, The Hoopers, Ice and the Face, Intermillennium Media Project, I Was Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, Jerry McMullen, John Hornsley, Justice First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Cristanos. Kyle Benning Likes Comet, Les Gonzalez, Long Box Crusade, Martin Gray, Myrna Loy, Nexus of All, Patrick R. Carey, Paul. Oh, you got another list? Paul Matthew Carr, Randy Andrews, Ranger Gord, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock, and... Thanos Podcast, uh, Ryan Daly, Sherlock 28, Steve Sellers, Tom 3.5, is that what it is? I think it's just 35. Tom 35, the men from Facebook, Derek William Crabb and Clinton Robinson, Keith G. Baker and Ryan Daly, Gord Tolton, Jeffrey Brown on the Avengers, I Know X-Men scribe Chris Claremont took a little inspiration from this show and with his creation of the hellfire club jason weingard and the white green emma frost to name a few with john byron during their run in the early 80s phoenix saga i have been watching patrick mcguin the prisoner lately i really love the off-kilter style of that show i am aware that grant morrison had written a comic miniseries of Steed and Peel. Now I first saw the British Avengers as the movie from the late 90s, early 2000s, I guess, with uh, Uma Thurman and Ralph Fiennes as Steed and Peel with Sean Connery and his evil Cabal. Cabal. Cabal dressed as plushy teddy bears. Oh, okay, now I see. And his mad weather machine, 
I had been a few odd episodes of the 60 series. Who am I quoting anyway? Uh, Jeffrey Brown. I like. He's commenting on our episode. Like we did an Avengers episode. I don't think you've listened to it, but you recorded it. Oh, I like watching these old British spy shows from the 60s, but the Avengers from the 60s need to be rewatched again. I like how the Avengers was a little weird, like McGugan's. Prisoner, I like uh, to think that they are uh, living in the village as numbers. You like the prisoner, huh? Oh, yeah, I like the prisoner. I thought about buying it once or twice. Okay. Yeah, they, you, uh, Jeffrey Brown's been asking us if we would go ahead and record an episode on it, but I guess we'll have to wait for one of us to buy it and then we can do an episode. On yeah. It. I, you, don't, I, you don't have the Danger Man stuff, do you? No. 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 I, I, I Did you think, ever watch it? Yeah, but I've got. I, I think I've got like three prisoners on one of my discs as part of their. As part of the. Uh, it's the one like the premiere one uh-huh. uh, uh, when he first gets to the island, the watch and all that crap. Yeah. Uh, no, when I was a kid, I watched that thing. I mean, I don't know how old this guy is, but... I don't think he's old. I think he's younger than me. Yeah, man, I mean, you know, uh, I watched them damn things. I'm pretty sure it was in the 60s, The Prisoner. I just remember I was how upset I was when they took it off broadcast TV. How do you think the Avengers would fare on the Prisoner's Island? Well, you know, you gotta look at it. The Prisoner was halfway serious. If you're younger than 50, you probably don't recall the Cold War all that much. You know, because... No, I, mean, I remember. It. Well, but you, but not not the depths like the '60s Bay of Pigs type of stuff, but yeah, the, yeah. the latter end of it. The thing was, times were always changing. You had things like the Salt Treaty and all that crap, and yeah, the Cold War was going on. But I mean, when I was a kid, we had to go out in the hallway. Put our, I mean, I've heard people talk about getting on their desk, but they actually made goals out of substance when I was a kid. You had a lot of stone and stuff. Not that it would, you know, but you'd go out in the hallway, tuck your head between your ass, and hope you didn't fart. <laughs> and it was a regular thing. I mean, it was half the kids I knew had bomb shelters in their backyard. And they knew even then that that was bullshit, right? Wasn't it just sort of like propaganda to get people to think they could survive? You don't understand. First off, if they're going to drop a nuclear weapon, it's got to have some kind of effect. The dropping cover and all that kind of crap, it, part of it was propaganda. It was to calm us down so we'd think, you know, we'd be the only race, to only survive. nation to survive and all that kind of shit. But on the other hand, it was pretty good advice. If you were 25 miles away, you might die of cancer but you wouldn't die that day, you know what I mean? We went to Hiroshima and there were still survivors who were at the memorial talking about what happened their families and stuff so yeah if you're at the epicenter you're toast but if you're far enough away it, it would matter to you to do something like duck and cover well but see it's just like in your lifetime Ellington Field wasn't an active Air Force but NASA worked out of it and stuff like that and yeah they had Air National Guard going there but when I was a kid that was an active Air Force but I came up until I was about 10 years old we lived in San Antonio and Corpus Christi I used to Every afternoon, I would go out on the school grounds after school let out, sit on the bleachers, and watch the Blue Angels. You know, that was in Corpus. In your lifetime, there hasn't been any sonic booms. When I was a kid, man, you heard them all the time. I never saw anybody's window get broken by them, but I remember when they ended them. You know, we didn't think we'd miss them, but we did. Yeah. <laughs> we got used to that. 
kaboom! You know, and then you hear for a few seconds, and you know, it was already 30, 40 miles down road line, you know. But no, when we, we lived in San Antonio, we were so close to the Air Force Base that things like B-29s would fly right above our house. When I was a kid, I'd be in a lounger in the backyard looking up. Planes would come over. I'm telling you, we could see the crew. We could see dirt and little stickers and stuff like stuck to the tires of the airplane. I mean, it was that low. It was right. I'm one of the kids that went out in my front yard and looked at Sputnik. You know, we watched it. It was just a little silver thing that ran across the sky, but I mean, you could see it. Yes, we knew that the Avengers was a comedy, that it was a spook, but I'm telling you that back in those times, things like The Prisoner and Mission Impossible, people watched watch that stuff seriously. You know, and, and shoot, there's historical things you can check on that crap. Don't forget, when Orson Welles did War of the Worlds on the radio, mind you, people got hurt. I mean, they, he got there was all kinds of lawsuits and stuff over there. So here's some people that never even seen a jet airplane, yet over the radio all of a sudden, we're being invaded by Mars. <laughs> Come on, people are pretty dumb, man. <laughs> No, but I took that stuff seriously. What I'm hearing is... Oh, Get Smart was on. Okay, so Get Smart was another spook. But no, the people actually saw things like The Prisoner. They wouldn't have believed it if it had been an American, but it was a Brit. People believed it. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> what I'm hearing is Mighty Mouse can't be Superman. It's just a cartoon. It isn't real. Hey, I used to watch Mighty Mouse. <laughs> I guess it's it's a good joke, but I never thought of it, so how smart am I? <laughs> so, uh, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, group. Oh, and we got more quotes. All right. Great conversation. Enjoyed hearing your comments about so many different British TV shows. The Avengers and the new Avengers are favorites of ours. We love Black Adder and Mr. Bean. And we were just watching some, uh, watching some are being served episode. Thanks for including some of these theme song of that theme song. Okay. And, and I'll I'll take care of the last ones. This is just pictures. Kyle Benning sent us a picture of Drylock, latex bonding agent, just you know riffing off of our name. Daniel French sent us a, a gift. You know what a gift is, mm. or a gif, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. They, uh, it was, was a photo. Like the, the, those little pictures, like the little animations. Yeah, those little animations. Yeah. So he sent us a gif of uh, Mr. Steed doffing his bowler at us. And Chris at Bad Books for Beginners said, thank you very much. He sent us a uh, JPEG of a gold key John Steed and Emma Peel comic book cover. BGSU Batman Comics uh, Conference sent us the cover from the uh, Batman 66 meets Steed and Mrs. Peel comic, which came out a few years ago. This is, of course, the Adam West Batman when they say Batman 66. And then Chronosphere Fiction sent us a gif of Steed cutting a rose and giving it to Mrs. Peel. So that's all very nice. Uh, which reminds me, I got you a little something at Comic Palooza. One sec. On the commenting about that one Note, I'm a fan of Are You Being Served, and I do have access to that set. I wasn't a big fan of uh, Black Adder. I mean, you know, some of it was funny, but I've got a friend that's a big fan, has all those DVDs, and sometimes I have to watch those with them. Well, actually, what they're responding to is you, you already t- told them about those, because those, we talked a little bit about the PBS uh, 
British shows and everything. So we, we pretty much went over through that one. But anyway, I got that for you while I was at the show. A man from Uncle... Now, there's another one that was a spoof, and everybody saw it was a spoof. It, that was a spoof? I thought that, that, that was a serious show. It wasn't a spoof. No, uh, no, no, no. Or you know about uh, the newer one they made a few years ago? No. You, look, believe it or not, I Spy was taken seriously. Two Americans, one white, one black. People took that seriously. We actually believe that's what CIA agents did. Man from Uncle, on the other hand, we knew was a bunch of silliness. For one thing, the scopes and stuff's on the gun. Believe it or not, they're for real. But back then, we thought they looked like toy ray guns. Mm -hmm. You're talking about an American and a Brit. I mean, that in and of itself was kind of humorous to Americans. Well, now, on the, in the show, he was uh, playing a Russian, though, right? Kuryakin? Yeah. Yeah. That's what he did. You ever catch him on NCIS? Yeah, he's the uh, coroner, right? Yeah, well, he's a, he's a medical examiner. Now he's changed jobs. He's NCIS's uh, historian, I think. <laughs> Them two guys were, I mean, that's what women went for, especially him. You know, anything British, but he was a cool-looking Brit. You know, both of those guys are kind of on the short side. But anyway... I haven't actually cracked it open. I don't know what it looks like inside. I can remember buying those. This, this is uh, one of the issues. I, I got an issue of the Gold Key, Man from Uncle Comic Book adaptation. I don't know if that came across in the audio. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know you identified it. But yeah, no, it just depends on what you were doing. It was like in The Prisoner. I can remember their arguments. You saw it in, in several of those shows and movies back then. In the Avenger movie we were talking about, you see them do it. Those big bubbles that you walk across the water in, you know, they're just blow-up yeah. bubbles. You get inside. Those came out about the same time as that, and they showed them in the prisoner and they showed it on Man from Uncle. Uh, I don't remember what other shows. I'm throwing Martin's lap in. I think they had a cutaway once. But when people saw stuff like that on the prisoner, they might, or you know, on any of those shows, they may stop and think that's a joke. But it, those things were developed by some guy. He was trying to sell them to use uh, like beach balls or stuff, you know, beach toys. So when they started putting them on the shows, people just, they might for a minute think, oh, man, man this is bullshit. I always knew that, you know. And then all of a sudden they see it on the morning show or in their local news. They go, oh, they're real. Oh, well, in that case, you know, <laughs> it, all those shows incorporated that. It's, it's just like Mission Impossible. You say, what happened to it? Well, it became Moonbase Alpha. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and we believe that crap. Now, we didn't believe that was actually going on. We believe that right around the corner, I mean, right around the corner, it was like next couple of years, that was what was going to happen. When you look at the date for 2001 Space Odyssey, some of that stuff is coming true on the ground, but you look at the date of Space Odyssey's release in relation to what was really going on in 2001, I always thought they it needs to be like Star Trek, man, or a lack of time zone for people to go with it anymore because Soylent Green, all that crap, all that stuff caught up with it. So just how entertaining are the films now? I know it's hard to believe, but yeah, people saw that in a serious manner. Do you have any serious stuff for Man from Uncle? Man, I was just a big fan. I thought... No, but no, I mean, I mean, like on DVD or something. Do you have any of that stuff? Uh, yeah, I think I do. I mean, I don't... I think what I do, I have like, I don't know, something like six or nine DVDs. It was one of those like a best of or something. But yeah, I probably have it back there in the bedroom. See? 
The preceding program is intended for the common good at no expense to any citizen. It should therefore be considered to possess a license to thrill in service to fair use, and not seen as a hostile act against copyright owners in the international marketplace. As always, should any of our agents be compromised regardless, we will disavow any knowledge of their activities. This transmission will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs>